Welcome to a 2015 SEI Grand Rounds podcast series sponsored by Kessler Foundation. Guest speaker Karen Begg presents Integrating Yoga into a Plan of Care for Individuals with Spinal Cord Injury. Karen is a clinical specialist in physical therapy at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. This lecture was recorded on December 16, 2015, and is presented by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, grant number 90SL5011-01-00. NIDILRR is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everybody. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces, which kind of makes me comfortable and a little bit nervous, as you guys know. but. Um, I'm here today to talk to you about uh, integrating yoga into a plan of care for a spinal cord injury. The one thing that I do want to know, and I just stopped down in the first floor gym, I was talking to Nick a little bit, it's really applicable to all the populations that we work with, but a lot about what I'm talking about today is geared a little more toward SEI, but it's definitely adaptable. Um, I just wanted to start out with my own personal journey, and some of you guys know this a little bit more than others, but how yoga came to me, and I came to yoga. Um, so I would say it was about 10 years ago when I was going through a lot of life transitions and not feeling the best. So um, I looked into options of how to like address some of the issues that I was going through. And what I learned about myself was that a lot of it was circumstantial, but I didn't know how to really handle it myself. And a lot of what I was holding on to was a lot of resistance to all the, the circumstances that were going on around me. I couldn't change them myself, but what I could do was change myself so that I saw it from a different perspective. And when I started working here, and then I got a little bit more into my practice um, of yoga, I realized that that's a lot of what SEI patients are going through. And we might consider them being like a little bit irritable, uh, a little bit maybe depressed, or you know, just difficult to work with. But really, I think a lot of it is that they're holding on to resistance, and they're not letting go, and a lot of it is a loss of control. So that's a major issue that we see on our floor. And um, I've literally seen the patients change before my eyes once they've started with yoga, and I know a lot of the patients on the floor have also seen that. Um, big, strong men crying. So um, I just wanted to give you my personal background before we got started. And then also I wanted to see by show of hands who actually practices religiously. Good. No, yeah, it doesn't need to be <laughs> Who, Whoever has practiced yoga. Okay, great. Does anyone want to offer up their definition of yoga? No one. I've been told I can call on people. Lindsay, tell me what you think yoga is. Okay, I like, fine. I'll go easy on you guys for today, just in the interest of getting started. But the first thing I wanted to um, talk about was maybe dispel a couple of myths. So I don't know if anyone saw Time Magazine, this issue that's out most recently. It really spoke to me because there's a picture of someone meditating on the front. So you guys can all see it. And also when I was at ASCAP, there was a lot of talk about mind-body medicine. So as I investigated a little bit further, I looked into Time Magazine to see what they were talking about. And it turns out that there was a major meta-analysis. It was 37 studies um, presented um, in a journal article in Europe, and really it was touting all the cardiovascular benefits of yoga. And there's a lot more to it than that, and we'll get into all of the benefits as I go forward, but I thought that the quote that the article started with was really 
cute. So it said, it's time to bury the notion that yoga classes are nothing but pretzel bending and nap time. And, and certainly, if you worked with me or you saw my patients, you would agree with that, that there's a lot more going on than that. So to define yoga, it's really a union of mind, body, and spirit. There are many, many, many definitions, but yoga itself is an individual experience, and it's about moving forward and experiencing change. Like I told you about myself, um, it was more of an emotional thing for me. It wasn't such the physical, although that's part of it. Um, but change in any capacity moving forward, whether it's emotional, psychological, physical. Um, and it's, it's moving from one point to another and hopefully getting to a higher level of consciousness and awareness about yourself and the surroundings around you. So just a brief history. Yoga originated in India over 5,000 years ago. It's evolved a lot from the time that people were hanging out in caves and meditating. Um, but in about the 1930s, yoga began to spread from India to the rest of the Western world. There are about 15.8 million Americans practicing yoga today. And a lot of them are in Bryant Park, which you can see in the bottom left-hand corner. <laughs> um, the first annual International Yoga Day was this year, in fact. And yoga is now classified by the NIH as a CAM therapy, so complementary and alternative medicine. So one facet of CAM therapy is mind-body medicine. And these are described as techniques that enhance the mind's capacity to affect bodily function and symptoms. And deep breathing yoga and meditation are the most commonly utilized forms of CAM therapies and mind-body therapies. Um, and in, from one article that I did read, one in 30 Americans use mind-body therapies because of a physician's referral. So this is something to consider for all the physicians out there and residents, that these are uh, practices that are being readily accepted by a lot of neurologically impaired patients. Um, this study had to do with fibromyalgia, MS, etc. And 24.5% um, of those that were surveyed who had a neurological condition used CAM therapies. And this uh, far superseded those that didn't have a condition, although it's you know yoga and mind-body medicine is also practiced amongst able-bodied and, and non-clinical subjects. So I don't want to go into too much detail on the history. It's a 5,000-year history. It's very, very long. But I did want to mention a couple of, of key players in yoga throughout the years. And, um, Krishnamacharya, Iyengar, and Deskachar, I don't know if you've heard of any of them, but those are the three that I really relate to because they were healers and they really believed in the, the practice of yoga for healing. So I'll talk a little bit more about them. Patanjali uh, was basically the, the father of yoga as he passed down the sutras, which is more like the yoga Bible. So it's really the, the aphorisms and the guidance towards that, that enlightenment. So more on the philosophical philosophical end of things. Krishnamacharya was a really influential teacher. He actually passed away at the age of, I believe, 101, back in the late 80s. Uh, his son took over for where he started as a healer, and he still practices and has a healing practice known as the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandiram in India. So if you hear of some of your yoga teachers going to India to do a retreat, they might be going there. And then Iyengar was the brother-in-law of Krishnamacharya. And he just passed away in 2014. So he was really influential in bringing, um, you know, bringing props into practice so that if you did have some sort of impairment or disability that you could practice. He really believed that everyone should be able to practice. And I don't know if anyone did a yoga search a couple of days ago, but if you did, you probably saw that little um, animation graphic that was there. So that was in commemoration of uh, Iyengar's, what would have been his 97th birthday. 
this chart's crazy. Um, and I don't expect you to remember any of it, and I can barely even see it, but I just wanted to put it there to really harken back to the fact that yoga has this really, really long history, 5,000 years, and it's branched out significantly. So if, if you do practice, you probably know there are lots of types of yoga. Um, as we go forward and we, in the presentation, I'm just gonna refer more back to more of the healing practices um, that are out there. So, and that being, there are many types, but these are more on what I feel like there are the healing ends of yoga. So you see adaptive, and those are more for individuals that do have disabilities. Matthew Sanford is a big pioneer in this field. Uh, just a little bit more about him. He actually has a nonprofit called Mind Body Solutions, and you can go on their website. It's mindbodysolutions.org. And he received a grant through the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, and he has a great practice out in Minnesota. He works with able-bodied and disabled clients. You see him in the back. And he's trained in Iyengar. So even though he's doing adaptive yoga with some of these, these individuals, he is an Iyengar alignment-based um, yoga teacher. So, um, and then again, there's Iyengar, there's restorative yoga, which deals a lot more with using props, holding positions for a longer period of time to relax the musculature and the, the fascia. Vinny yoga, you may have heard of also. This evolved from Deskachar's teachings. And then integrative yoga therapy or integral. Um, this addresses specific diagnoses, a little more medical based, and um, uses some other mind body practices as well. So, going a little bit more into the philosophy, uh, philosophy of yoga, there are eight limbs of yoga, and I'm just going to really point out the, the asana and the pranayama because these are mostly what we see with our patients. If you see me, I'm working with the patients, I'm guiding them through breath work uh, in coordination with movement patterns. But really, the ultimate goal in working through all of these steps is to reach a higher level of enlightenment. Um, so the next phase down from pranayama, so asana is really just the exercises, the poses. Pranayama is the specific breath work. And then beyond that is pratyahara, so that's restraint of the senses. So for any of us that have practiced yoga, when you start really doing the breath work, you have sort of a withdrawal of the senses where you're really able to tune out your, the environment that's around you. And from that, you can get into a med meditative state. And then beyond that, samadhi would be complete enlightenment. So none of us in this room will probably ever reach that period of complete enlightenment. Um, we can strive for it, but there are very few people that do reach it. But as long as you have that in mind, that you want to create that awareness, that's really how you can experience that change and go forward. So pranayama and the breath control. Krishnamacharya said, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. I think that's really poignant. I've had patients that have said, you know, we should really do yoga. And they've said to me, well, how? I, I mean, I'm a tetraplegic now. I, I'm C5. Like, how am I supposed to do yoga? Well, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, in the next few slides, I, I have them laid out as the key muscle groups of respiration. Um, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail just in the interest of saving time. We've all been trained in anatomy and we sort of know how it works, but I'll make a couple of key points as I go on throughout. Um, our key muscle groups of respiration, we have our accessory muscles, our diaphragm, intercostals, and abdominals, and they all work together to help us breathe efficiently. As far as our accessory muscles are concerned, what I really do want to point out is that they are important. So if you have a patient, for example, like I just mentioned, a C5 patient, you would expect that they would have a fully innervated diaphragm, but they're lacking the abdominals and the intercostals. So you may see excessive accessory muscle use. The accessory muscles are important to these patients, 
but at the same time, you don't want them to overuse them. So you might have to emphasize training the diaphragm quite a bit more with those patients. And then as far as the diaphragm is concerned, that's really our major muscle of respiration. It's responsible for 70% of respiration, innervated by C3, C4, C5. Um, and another a key point I wanna make here is something we don't really think about, and I'll refer more back to it later on during the discussion, but one of the important attachments is the lumbar spine. So as initially our patients are a little more immobile, tissue gets really tight, and that connection to the lumbar spine can be impacted. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more as we go on, but in general, as you take a deep breath in, it's a concentric contraction um, of the diaphragm, which descends, and then your, your ribs move up and apart, and then upon expiration, it's, it reverses itself. And the diaphragm is really, really important for um, control of coughing and singing and holding your voice. So it's just something really to think about if we're cueing our patients to take these long inhalations and exhalations that they really need to have control of their diaphragm. So we might have to work a little bit more on the diaphragm itself. The intercostal muscles just connect the ribs in between. Uh, one thing to think about is if you've had a patient with a multi-trauma on top of a spinal cord injury, there might be a lot of muscle tightness in the region, and that's something to really consider. And then also, if they've had any sort of rib fractures, they might also have pain on top of, of everything else. So we have to be really considerate of that when we're suggesting the poses and working them through the session. As far as abdominals are concerned, I think the main thing to point out here is, of course, we're working mainly with our SAI patients, but for those working with other patients, um, you really want to make sure that you're training the, the abdominals and then with our patients who do have spinal cord injuries to be aware of what level of injury they are. Do they have intact abdominals? Are they you know, partially intact? Are they fully intact? And you can base your session around that as well, just knowing what they have or do not have. And it's also really important to engage them. This chart is very busy. Um, I actually use it for a respiratory lecture for students. But um, I think it's a good reference point, and I can email the entire presentation to you guys later, but I think the main thing to point out on it is what your expectations would be of per level of injury and what their respiratory dysfunction is, and that's gonna help guide your practice as well. You know, knowing how much work you should be doing uh, with each muscle group, and then also which respiratory musculature maybe we need to strengthen a little bit more, what we might need to stretch a little bit more to access the right muscles for more, you know, effective breathing. So pranayama, pranayama is breath control, it's your life force. So you can read the definitions, but basically it's that which is anywhere. So with pranayama, you wanna make sure that you're, you're consciously linking the breath and the body. So this is our link between our inner and our outer body. And the goal is really to reduce the amount of prana outside and get rid of what isn't needed. So the way that I look at that basically is we want to take in as much oxygen as possible and get rid of the waste in an effective manner. Um, and you want to keep what's good inside of you and get rid of what's bad. So in instructing a patient in pranayama, it's really important that the patient is aware of their breath and they're really attentive to what they're doing with their breath work. So you're gonna guide them through that. Um, it's what keeps them present and in the moment and, and not really drifting off into those other thoughts. Our patients are anxious, so if you can have them really focus on breath work, that might reduce that just a little bit. You can cue them on where they feel the breath, where does it come in and where does it leave. You can have them try to follow the breath, 
and then also listen for their breath. So pull in all of the senses. I can't even recall how many times I've said to the patient, take a deep breath. But they might not know what a deep breath is anymore. All of a sudden they have a spinal cord injury, they have some neurological disorder, they've been immobile, they're debilitated. So we have to think about that and take that into consideration when we're saying, take a deep breath. They might not know. You might have to say, this is what you're looking for. This is what you should feel. This is what you should hear. Um, with pranayama, breath should always be fluid and controlled and it should never be forced. As far as positioning is concerned, the best position would be relaxed and seated with an erect spine. It could be, you're gonna see Ugo sitting on the mat. I know everyone's happy because he's the sweetest guy ever. But um, the patient should be seated with an erect spine. Here's the thing with, with SEI. Not everyone can sit like Ugo. Ugo happens to be like superstar, C7. He has C7 touch plegia. He is complete, um, but he can really sit very well. So if the patient cannot sit like Ugo, it might be best to lie them in supine, but with an erect spine. Um, so like I said, the positions vary. It's based on their ability, their flexibility, and their comfort level. If you know that, for example, he can't sit longer than five minutes at a time and you wanna do six minutes of pranayama, maybe you need to change the position to make it a little bit more accessible to him. Um, also, one thing to promote relaxation, you can have the patient with their eyes closed and they should always remain still when they're performing the pranayama. So this is where I'm gonna actually get you guys involved. I know you're all eating pizza, but. Um, I just want to cue you in diaphragmatic breathing. We do it all the time with the patients. In fact, I was just doing this with a patient prior to leaving the gym. But I just want you to place one, I know they have two hands here, but place one hand on your abdomen and one on your chest. And take a deep breath in and feel your abdomen rise up into your hands. And then your chest into your top hand, your sternum lifts. And then as you exhale, gently feel your abdomen release back towards your spine and your chest come back down. And then just take a couple of breaths on your own, evenly. Good, and then gently close your eyes. Take a couple more breaths. Okay, and then float your eyes open. I don't know what you guys felt, but that was very relaxing. Did anybody have a different experience? Did it sort of calm you down? Okay, fine, you don't have to answer. But, but anyway, um, one interesting thing that I did want to point out, and if you do any research in anatomy and yoga, I came across something really interesting with uh, Deskachar and his teachings. So Deskachar actually said you should inhale into your chest first because it elongates the spine. So when you inhale, you get extra space. To me, I thought that was a little wacky because normally we say um, you don't want to focus on the abdomen first and then the lift. But it's just something to consider. You may run across that. So it's two different ways to cue it. So if you get the extra elongation from the chest first, there is more space in the spine. Ujjayi breath is just a little bit different. It, it is a form of diaphragmatic breathing, and I'm going to have you guys do this too, even though you're going to sound like Darth Vader. But, um, it's a process of breathing in and out through the nose, and as you're exhaling, your mouth is, is closed, 
and you're shunting the breath through your throat, so the glottis is closed. So it's a way that you can hear yourself. It's very relaxing, um, and it should be a flow. If, if it disrupts your pose, like if you have a patient doing ujjayi breath and it disrupts them or it's painful, then you, know, you move on and maybe try something that's a little less dynamic or a little less severe. So let's just try it again. You guys can put your hands wherever you want, but this works for me. Take a deep breath in through the nose. And on your exhale, you're gonna keep your mouth closed and the air is coming through the throat. It's a little embarrassing at first, but let's try it again. And I know I sound like Darth Vader. Try one more time. Okay, we'll move on. So just to keep a couple of things to consider with, with spinal cord injury as far as respiratory impairments are concerned. Most of our patients, when they come in, regardless of the level of injury, even, you know, they may have a multi-trauma, um, they have some sort of ineffective use of the respiratory musculature. And they're probably really, really tight because they've been laying down for a long time. So they have impaired thoracic expansion and recoil. And they, um, further diaphragmatic weakness can also cause a shortening and, and suboptimal contraction. So inhalations and actual exhalations are difficult. So some of the therapeutic benefits of doing very specific pranayama would be that you can strengthen the diaphragm um, for more efficient breathing and greater thoracic expansion. And that this can also improve our pulmonary function. And also this can be used as an airway clearance technique. So whether it's a positioning strategy where someone is lying on their side and you're focusing specifically on opening up one side of their body um, or if you're employing some sort of glossopharyngeal breathing, you might be able to help the patient with clearing their airways a little bit more effectively. So just some special considerations. Deep breathing can elicit a spasm in the trunk if it's not fluid. It can also elicit a cough, which we just talked about. So under certain circumstances, that's a good thing. Sometimes it could be a little bit disruptive. If anyone practices regularly, you probably do breath retention. When in my experience in teaching a patient to do breath retention is very difficult for patients to have any sort of uh, respiratory difficulty. So it might be something you would use with caution or avoid. Maybe with other populations, it might work a little bit better. Um, you could see accessory breathing and we try to dissuade that, but sometimes it's needed. But one point I did want to make about this, and we see this all the time in SCI, especially with our, our Tetras, is that they have a ton of shoulder pain. Sometimes that shoulder pain is actually related to excessive uh, accessory use. And so what you might see is that, um, say the scalenes get super tight because they're attached to the rib, the rib is pulled up, and now, oh, I have shoulder pain. Well, sometimes it comes from the cervical region. So that's something that you should really consider when working with the patients. Um, cueing is really key. We talked about that before. If you don't know how to breathe in this new body, we really have to be specific about what we're looking for when we ask them to take a deep breath. And then also prop use. So you can see Ugo in the, the bottom right hand corner. He has a, a soft bolster underneath his back and it's really promoting thoracic expansion. So an opening of the pecs and allowing him to breathe further up into his chest. Prepping for pranayama. As I mentioned, if, if the patient is really having any sort of difficulty breathing and it impacts their ability to perform the poses, you might want to start with prepping for pranayama. So 
That being said, certain poses allow for an increase of the volume uh, in the lungs and also of the thoracic region. So on our floor, we do this all the time, but we're not really thinking about maybe what we're doing. So if we have a, a patient come into a forearm prop, we're allowing them to get more posterior expansion. When we bring them into a side prop, we're allowing their side to expand a little bit more for some more opening in the ribs and the side body. And then if we have them say how Ugo was prior, or you can see him even in this position, over the bolster is allowing for more expansion um, superiorly and into the chest. And then also, I just wanted to point out, because I had mentioned about the, the attachment of the diaphragm earlier into the lumbar region, you can see Ugo also has a, a bolster placed at the lumbar region. So the goal of doing that is really to try to lengthen that attachment um, of the diaphragm. So you, some of the issues you might see are the patient can't really come forward, they're having difficulty in the lumbar region, even though that's the area of their injury. Well, it could be that all of the attachments got really tight and now they can't move. So that's something also to consider. This is probably what you're thinking of um, when you think about me doing my interventions with the patients. Not necessarily the breath work, but I'm gonna run through the poses. So these are your asanas. So poses, asana, it's a posture. So there are two important qualities of poses. They, the patient should always be alert and paying attention to their body position. And it should also be comfortable and relaxing. So you want that to come together. This is where the body and the breath and the mind come together. Static poses can be held isometrically for a certain number of breaths or a period of time. And dynamic poses are more dynamic. You're, you're working with the breath. So for example, if you inhale your arms up, you exhale down. So you coordinate the breath together with the movement. Importantly, if, if discomfort really diverts away from the breath work, then you want to modify what you're doing. So the, I would say that the breath work trumps the poses. So if something isn't working, modify. Don't push through pain, progress the patient gradually, and allow them to rest as needed. So for, <laughs> I like this picture, I'm sorry. I don't know if anyone watched Dharma and Greg, but I put that on there because I think it's kind of funny. But I just want to talk a little bit about sequencing a session. And this, Dharma was actually a, a yoga teacher but she was also kind of wacky uh, in her own right. But the Dharma talk that I'm talking about isn't necessarily Dharma. So for those of you who regularly practice, you probably know what I'm talking about. But a Dharma talk is really a source of inspiration. It's, it's maybe some, not necessarily advice, but maybe you want to talk about a topic that relates to and is relevant to your, your current patients that you're working with. And I can give you a good example. So. One day I was, I had everybody lined up and I had a little tea and on my tea bag it said, let things come to you. So I use that as a source of inspiration for my talk with the patients. And uh, I thought it was really relatable because so many times our patients are like, I want to walk. I want to do this. I want to do that. And they're just not ready to do it yet. So sometimes if we let things come to us, it, it's a lot easier um, than grasping for straws and wasting a lot of energy. So that was sort of my inspiration for that talk. But you know, you, everyone knows their patients and what's gonna work for them. But it's a way to ground them before the session. Um, begin with pranayama, so lots of breathing, and then work to your poses. And with the poses, you wanna start simple like any other workout. Make the poses a little bit more challenging and then slow it down to the cooling poses and end with relaxation. The poses that you choose can be based on a specific goal or, or benefit, so if if your patients are really having a hard time coming forward because 
they're nervous about coming forward, you can work on forward folds and reaching out of their base of support. You can work on a specific body part, for example, if someone has really tight hips, or a type of pose, so back bends, forward bends. Um, and then you always want to end with some sort of relaxation, which is your Shavasana. Special considerations in SCI, talked a little bit about this already, but your level of injury, um, their impaired innervation and sensation, so what do they have to work with? Uh, multi-trauma, which could relate to pain and some muscular tightness, and then whether or not they're restricted by a cervical collar or TLSO. So two, twofold with that, one, if they currently have the orthosis in place, it might restrict what movements you're gonna try to have them do. But at the same time, when I see the removal, I see that the patients still are sometimes restricted because they were so immobilized for so long. So you wanna think about what you can gently do to reverse that. And in general, you could, if the patient is able to stay upright, your progression would be from a wheelchair to sitting on the, med, the edge of the mat with some back support and slowly progress them to without and then incorporating higher level positions like quadruped, prone, um, and then going from there. You can work with the patients in a number of ways. So individualized practice is one of the ways. We can also do group practices, which I'll talk about. And then you can also implement some of the poses into your plan of care just for a regular session. So individualized practice is great because you can have more hands-on approach and you can really challenge the, the patient. So you can see Ugo with his look of serenity on his face, but he, um, he absolutely loved it. He was, you know, like I said, he was a higher level injury and it was a way for him to get into positions that he really was not working on prior. Um, so he really benefited from that and it's a way that you can address patient specific limitations so if you're in a group you really have to play to the group but with the patient by themselves you can really work on specific limitations and it might be more appropriate for higher levels of injury so this is just a video really quick of ugo and me so he's he's coordinating his breath with the movement just watch it so he's inhaling and extending back he's using his breath to come forward and I'm cueing him as we go so lots of tactile cueing as possible with the individualized practice great group practice so Group practice fosters social support and camaraderie. There are many studies that support this. It also fosters some healthy competition, which yoga really isn't about competition, but if, if the bros wanna throw it up and you know compete for the best posture, that's fine. I see it all the time. Um, and also you can cohort individuals of similar ability, age, and or sex to really foster those benefits. You see the patients right now um, lying on the mat and I didn't ask for them to fist bump, they did it, so, and that's, really because it does foster that camaraderie. They're getting into positions that they haven't in a long time. They're doing things that are a little bit more challenging. And so it's, it's a great way to work. Um, you see AMP in the lying down. She was my patient and I would just incorporate some of the positioning strategies with her 
as part of our session. And one of the, the key things I do want to point out here is it's great for patients that have a lot of spasticity and tone and are having difficulty on the wing with nursing. So I'm sure that I see my nurses out there. Sometimes it's really difficult to work with patients when they have a lot of adductor tone or flexor or extensor tone. It's hard to get them in the positions that they need to be in for either repositioning or even hygiene. So this is something to consider maybe even for nursing if they go into the room, getting them into a prolonged position prior to initiating some of those, the nursing things that need to be done. So um, that prolonged positioning is also great for contracture prevention and you can address respiratory dysfunction as well. So just gonna go through these pretty quickly, but um, sort of cohorted the next few slides on types of postures, traditional, poses so these would be your standing poses but these are adapted to sitting down so you can see Ugo again he's like the best volunteer ever um, here are some more standing poses and each of them there's a, def a different benefit and a lot of it has to relate to how do you apply it to their the respiratory function so you see and, and moving their spine in all of the different ways that can be moved so each of these positions is el eliciting a certain response I'll go through, these are more of our seated positions. And a lot of them are really like traditional poses that you would do in, in a setting. And I really feel like it makes the patients um, feel like they're participating in something that's more mainstream when everything else has sort of been taken away from them. There are more reclining poses, so you can address some limitations in the trunk. And then restorative poses. So restorative poses are poses that are held for a longer period of time. And, the use of props is really beneficial for this. So it allows for a more passive stretching and it's very comfortable. Also for spasticity management and relaxation and respiratory capacity, these are great tools. So more dynamic sequences. So we talked about this before, but it's really important that you're joining your breath with the movement. So in general, if you're cueing a patient for inhalation or for extension, so you're gonna inhale up, and exhale down. Can everyone do this with me? Just because you're going to feel the difference. I want you to do it first without the inhalation and exhalation. Just lift your arms up and down. All right. What happened at your ribs? Mm, something, maybe. Okay. Now everyone join your breath. So inhale and exhale. Did you feel your rib cage move a little bit more? Did you feel a little bit more movement? Okay. So that, that breath work is supporting physically what happens to our anatomy. And it's just enhancing what we're doing. So this can carry over to our functional mobility. So for example, there's a reason why we're saying when we do a sit to stand transfer, inhale, exhale. It's supporting what our body is naturally doing already. So the breath is really, really important to carry over into functional activities. And um, one thing that I've always heard is moving meditation feel like when you join the breath with the movement, it, it is really like you are meditating. I'm just gonna show you a couple of short clips. Oops. So Ugo's inhaling, and then he's exhaling back down. And then, just as I said, the breath is linked to spinal movement. So just imagine as you're watching, what's happening with his body and what's happening with his breath based on what we just talked about. So he's inhaling up. He's finding more extension in his spine. 
He's exhaling, everything's flexing, coming back together. And this is a patient who does not have core. So he's really using, um, and he is pretty phenomenal, but he's really using the breath to help with his body awareness. And this is just what a vinyasa flow. If we've ever, most people here who have done yoga, they're doing vinyasa flow. So this would just be an example of how you can work a patient through coordinated movement patterns that are more functionally based. These are things that he's gonna have to do in real life. He's gonna have to lean over and reach down for something and pick it up. It's just a nice way to do it. That's sort of like exercise. So pose modifications, we only have a few minutes to go and I wanna give you guys a couple minutes for uh, questions, but there are a lot of traditional yoga props that you can find in a studio, like blocks and straps and bolsters, and there's other things that I use all the time in the gym setting. So hemi bolsters and bolsters, as well as pillows, blankets. Um, folding armchairs are actually really, really great. So it's worth using them for a little extra support if the patient needs it. As far as post modifications and adaptation goes, you can see right here are two great examples. So, uh, Ugo is using just a regular bench that we have in the gym for added support. And instead of raising both arms, he's placing one down, even though the traditional pose would be with two. Um, and he's holding onto an armrest in the lower picture. So, that's another great way to do that. Using a transition point, is, I found, is really effective. So. Many times I'll cue the patient to raise their arms and then come all the way forward. And for a lot of patients, either it's not accessible or it's too scary. So they have to reach down, place their hands on their thighs or onto a stable part of the chair and then lower themselves down. Uh, you could also increase back support and it's a great way that you can give some cueing and tact tactile cueing from the posterior aspect of the patient. And if you have to pull in a mirror for visual feedback, that's great. Um, and then some adaptations for incomplete SEI. So not all of our patients are complete, um, and we really wanna give an extra challenge to the incomplete SEI patients. So you can challenge them by allowing them to engage their core with decreased back support, um, putting their feet on the floor, and really talk about tractioning their legs back as they pull themselves forward to engage their hamstrings. And um, you can also really challenge them with higher level mat mobility skills. So say they were in quadruped, you could have them lift an arm forward. Sort of traditional, but adapting it more to yoga. And some helpful tips, try to be creative and flexible. Um, things happen, uh, patients are in pain, you might have to shift gears, be really sensitive with your wording. If you're working with a group of patients, the likelihood is not all of them are going to be at the same capability level. So you can use wording like if it's available to you or if you're comfortable with. Um, emphasize that each individual is different. There's no perfect in yoga. It's a unique journey. Everyone's on their own journey. Um, and although group sessions should be focused, a lot of times they will become tangential and lots of topics will be discussed that are really important for peer support, like bowel and bladder management. Um, so just allow it to happen because this is therapeutic in and of itself. So I just am quickly gonna run through benefits. So there are a lot of psychosocial benefits of yoga, stress and anxiety management is a major part, it, easing mild to moderate depression, developing a sense of self and more body awareness, 
allowing the, the patient to feel like they're involved in a mainstream activity and taking ownership of continued care of their body. So they're becoming more aware of who they are again and it, it builds self-efficacy and prevents secondary complications. So, um, you know, I'm just gonna end here and with this quote because I think it's really poignant and it's, it's not what you get from yoga, it's what you leave behind. So you might go in with one intention, I wanna be more flexible, I wanna have more balance, I wanna be stronger, but it's really what you're leaving behind so that you can move forward and move ahead. And I'm just gonna end there. All right, you guys are off the hook.